Perhaps, Father, because of the way that you have made us glorious in your image and yet finite. Perhaps because of the culture in which we live, an age of immediacy of information and distraction. Father, whatever the, the reasons, we tend to live very myopically, focused on the here and now and what is most important to our eyes. But Father, when we sing a song like we've just sung and it forces us to put our minds back into your word and to consider the thousands of years that you were working in this world before you sent Christ into it, and that now, 2,000 years later, we are still the recipients of that blessing of Christ, the fulfillment of your promises, of all of your plans and purposes to bring salvation to an undeserving world. Father, we pray that even this morning as we look at a psalm, that will press us deeper into your word and to see how your promises all intertwine and come together so beautifully in Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would, that you would give us a spiritual vision correction this morning. That, Father, we would be able to take our minds and our focus off of even this busy season and over the immediacy of our lives in which we live and help us to have an eternal vision. God, a vision that takes in the sweep of human history as you have described it, as you have planned it, so that we might see Jesus at the center of all things. And seeing him at the center of all things by your will, we pray that you would help us to make him the very center of our lives, a place he deserves to be with great worship and love and service. So, Father, we, we need your help for these things this morning. We pray that as we look to your word that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That, Father, you would be with us and enable us to behold the glory of Christ as your promised Messiah this morning. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you're a copy of God's word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. <clears throat> In case you hadn't noticed, it's Christmas time. From decorations to lights to music on the radio and in shops and stores, everything is moving towards December 25th. And for all of the, uh, the, the real talk and instruction about saying happy holidays and seeking to be inclusive to everyone, Jesus just won't go away. People that aren't even Christians or very religious still find time to think about this newborn king. They hear about, they sing about, they listen to. They may even refer to Jesus during this season or other times as some kind of a good teacher or maybe some kind of uh, philosopher, someone who had a message of love and so they have respect for him. But then very quickly they will condemn all of the kind of God talk surrounding Jesus and pontificate on all the ways that his followers ruined his reputation and twisted his teachings. Thus, everybody has their take on Jesus. This is what he was really about, they claim to know. And strangely enough, Jesus usually ends up looking and sounding a lot like the person giving their opinion about who Jesus was. During Jesus' earth, uh, earthly life, his ministry attracted lots of attention. People were listening to his teaching. They were watching his miracles and wondering why he was so different from all the other religious leaders 
that they had encountered in their lives. Those same leaders didn't like some of the things that he was saying, certainly some of the things that he was doing, and so they would often challenge Jesus. They resented his popularity and they were always questioning him, trying to catch him out, trying to to, to put him in a box and relegate him to show to the people that he is not anything that special. You should listen to us instead. And towards the end of his Towards the end of his earthly ministry, we can read about this in Mark 12 and Mark 22. We see an instance uh, really close to the cross where Jesus has come out of a rapid-fire session of question and answer. Well, what about this, Jesus? And what about this? And what about this? And, and what ended up happening was Jesus having an opportunity to give insightful, definitive and unexpected answers. But then at the end of that, Jesus kind of puts it all to a stop by flipping the tables. He, he flips the script on the religious leaders, and he says, now let me ask you a question. You've been, you've been hammering me those questions. Let me, let me ask you a question. It was a question that caught them off guard. It was a question that they had no answer for. It was a question that actually shut them up. Matthew tells us in twenty two fourteen, no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. What kind of question was that? What did he ask the religious leaders about for which they had no answer, no response, and it scared them into being quiet? He asked them about the Messiah in Psalm 110. Jesus understood its importance in pointing forward to himself, and so did his apostles. In fact, Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. The early Christians saw this part of Scripture as essential to seeing the glory of Jesus as the promised Messiah. Thus, even today, it becomes essential for us if we are going to grasp hold of the reality of who Jesus really is. Is. We, we celebrate his birth every year. We put our faith in him. We should trust and serve him every day of our lives. And Psalm 110 helps us to see why and how to do that. So let's see what it says. Let's stand as we read Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. More than just bringing together the Old and New Testaments more clearly in your minds, I hope this morning, I I, I further hope that this psalm will give us a deeper appreciation of Jesus' person and ministry as the Messiah. And as we said before, this should lead us in turn to love and trust and serve Him more fervently, not just at Christmas, but all the days of our life. And so as we have that end in mind, as we have that as our goal uh, to, 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 to achieve that by looking at Psalm 110, we want to see Christ's glory here as the promised Messiah. And in order to do that, we first need to understand the Messiah's exaltation, the Messiah's exaltation. We need to understand that this morning. 
As with last week's psalm, we begin with a superscription here today, a psalm of David. Now, we are not told this time when he wrote it or what the circumstances were, and we don't really need to. We're going to speculate about halfway through the sermon on that, but we don't really need to understand it uh, uh, to, to fully appreciate what's going on here or even its significance. Simply that David wrote it is sufficient. David, remember, was king in Israel. He was the first king appointed by God after Saul's failed reign as king. And therefore, David as monarch was the highest authority under God himself in the kingdom of Israel. And yet he utterly shocks us with this opening verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You may be sitting there saying, well, that doesn't shock me very much. Okay, well, let me tell you why it should shock you very much. Remember, David was king. That means only his only Lord was God himself. And we see that designated by the small capital letters. This is the Lord, the Lord God in your English Bibles. And what does, say, what does he say in verse 1? There are two lords. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the living God, the Lord says to my Lord. That is, God says to my Lord. Well, wait a minute. Who is David's Lord? There's nobody over David. There's no other king. There's no other regent. There's no other Lord. Who is he talking about? It has to be someone superior to David in order for him to call him Lord. Now, by Jesus' day, everyone in Israel understood this psalm was speaking about the Messiah. And they knew that Messiah would be David's son from his line and lineage. So how can the son be greater than the father? Doesn't make any sense. How can David call his descendant Lord? In fact, this is the question that stopped the Pharisees dead in their tracks. He says, who's, who's the Messiah going to be? And they replied, the son of David. And you can imagine, they're kind of like, come on, everybody knows that. He goes, well, then how could, how could he call him Lord? And it shut him up. They had no answer. They had no way to respond. If the problem still isn't clear to you, let, let's think for a minute just about the cultural difference between us and the ancient Near East. Today, youth is often exalted above the previous generations. Part of that comes from the older generations longing for their days of youth, and some of that comes from the youth themselves. Now, there are exceptions, but generally speaking in our culture, younger people, rather than honor or respect their parents or grandparents, think they know it all. They are on the cutting edge of all things, making them believe in J.I. Packer's words, the newer is truer, only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. If we were to summarize it by something that a few young people say today, that mindset, that is, it would be with the phrase, okay, boomer. Just to be clear, I am not a boomer, for those of you that are young. This is not the culture we see in other parts of the world. It's certainly not the culture we see in the Bible, though. From a biblical perspective, I am greater than my kids, just as my father is greater than me, and my grandfather was greater than all of us. Therefore, I should not be impatient when my, my aging father, and back when my grandfather was still alive, was maybe slower than we would have liked, or maybe he was, had something to say, and, and we were not impatient, like, come on, come on, come on, get, get. That, that should not have been the attitude. In fact, I, I will tell you this, young people, if you want to bless an older person, 
at some point when, when they are out in public and they are, they are moving slow towards the door and, and you're coming in fast and they stop to let you go? You stop and you say, no, no, go ahead. And they'll say, well, I'm going to move slow. And here's what you should say to them. That's okay. At, you've earned the right to go as slow or as fast as you want. And you will put a smile on their face. Greater respect was shown in this culture for age. It wasn't, it wasn't the youth that was loved and went after. It was maturity and wisdom and age. And, and I, I had a little bit of a personal experience this back when, when I was a young buck myself and still learning to respect my elders. I, I had a, a, a man that was a good friend from Korea in seminary. He was um, almost twice my age. Uh, and he... Uh, observed some spiritual deficiencies in me. And so while I was helping him with his English, he was pushing me in my devotional life and my growth in the Lord. And he invited me over to his house for dinner one night for some authentic Korean food. Yes, it was hot and it was spicy and it was glorious. Nevertheless, that's not the point of the the story. The the, the point of the story was they they were finishing up a Bible study, which he did not invite me to because it was all in Korean. Uh, no, no problem. He said, come afterwards and we'll have some dinner. But one of the people that were there for the Bible study was an older Korean man. And, and through, through another younger guy that was translating, he told me that his body had been completely saturated with cancer. It was like an 85% of his body was all over the place. And, and through the treatments he had been receiving and through the prayers of God's people, he said, God had almost completely healed him. And I was like, praise the Lord. But he was like, no, 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 I want to prove it to you. So we're going to arm wrestle. Now, you know, I know enough about Asian cultures to understand the level of respect, the level of deference. And I don't care how much God had healed him. He is is in his 80s and I am in his 20s. The second we gripped hands, there's no strength in his body. But what am I going to do? Am I going to be like, boom, gotcha, old man? Not on your, not, no, no, no. It would have been disrespectful to him. It would have made me look like a complete idiot. That is not what I should have done. He was my senior. I showed him respect. Now, all that is to say, this is the same kind of mindset going on in the ancient culture, and David is flipping all of those cultural expectations on its head. He's defying what we would expect. The Messiah is David's son, but somehow the son is greater than the father, David himself. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's a king who doesn't simply reign as God's anointed. That's another word for Messiah, as God's anointed, but one who reigns from heaven itself. He's at the right hand of God. So the promised Messiah is more than David's son. He's David's greater son. He is more than a mere man or even a mere king. That's how this psalm begins. An oracle of God to the Messiah telling him, come and sit at my right hand. It is a picture of the enthronement of a king. Of him walking up the steps and sitting down in his throne. Of a king ascending to power for the first time, beginning his reign. But notice this enthronement is an exaltation to heaven itself. And so this sets the stage for helping us understand what what is this promised Messiah going to be and why we should respond to him. David, David unfolds the reign of this Lord, and that's what we want to see here, and we need to understand how to respond. Namely, we ought to follow the Messiah's kingship. We ought to follow the Messiah's 
kingship. Well, what does that kingship look like? Well, first of all, we see that he rules with divine authority. He rules with divine authority. Verse 1 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now once again, we see an echo of the exaltation of the anointed one in Psalm 2 that we looked at uh, several months ago. Then God sat in the heavens and laughed as the nations sought to upend the rule of his anointed on his throne. It was a ridiculous thought that they could rebel against him. Moreover, he says he had established his king on his holy hill and would give him victories over all of his enemies. Now here, God is extending that reign. It's not just that he's getting victory now, it is a global triumph. His mighty scepter goes out from Zion. Zion is Jerusalem and all of his expected glory. It is going out and going to all of the nations. And, and he does this again somehow, both from heaven, and yet that authority is moving out from Jerusalem, from Zion. And so what you have in the, the picture you have in Psalm 2 is portrayed even more vividly here. It's like God switched on the high definition setting for us. The Lord's anointed is not just a human on a throne, but he is at God's right hand. Thus, the psalm is pushing us to see that though the Messiah is the son of David, he is more than that. He is even more than just a man. He shares something of the divine qualities, particular divine authority. And it's this verse that is picked up in several places by the New Testament writers and applied to Jesus' own life and ministry. Specifically, they use it to show his supremacy over everything that has come before in his reign as Messiah. So in Psalm 2, Peter tells his fellow Jews that Jesus was greater than David because David died and he stayed dead, but Jesus was raised back to life. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this one whom you crucified. You tried to kill him, you tried to stop him, you tried to reject him, and God said, no thanks, he is my son. And he is my king. He is the promised Messiah. I will raise him up and he will reign over all things. Later in Acts 5, the apostles quote Psalm 110 and show that Jesus is the glorified, authoritative king at God's right hand. And this is why they ought to obey him rather than the religious leaders telling them to stop preaching the gospel. Later, the book of Hebrews will tie these things together, proving that Jesus is greater than all. We, read, uh, for, for, we heard Pastor Jason read from, from Hebrews 1 some of this earlier. He is greater than all in part because he is the eternal God, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Thus, as the promised Messiah, Jesus rules with divine authority. And David goes on to describe that reign even further. In verse 3, he says, he is the Messiah who gathers a holy army. He's a Messiah who gathers a holy army. Several years ago, I was reading the, the kids a book about John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and we talked about when he was a teenager, he was press-ganged into serving into the Navy. 
Uh, if you don't know what press gang, being press ganged is or being pressed into service, it's when a man or a group of men with or without clubs would literally drag you off the streets and take you to a ship of the line and uh, throw you there. And if you gave them grief, they might whack you on the head and drag your unconscious body on there or throw you into the, into the hold of the ship and lock you in there until they were way away from port. And then you had two options. You either served on the ship as a sailor or you were beaten into submission, or they had no time for you, they just threw you overboard and killed you. The draft is a much nicer way of raising soldiers and sailors for the army today. But notice, none of that's in view here. There's no conscription. You know, one of the things that, 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 uh, that the people of Israel warned about was, listen, you're begging for this king, and you know what the king's going to do? He's going to excise taxes. He's going to send your young men off to war. Are you sure you want a king? And notice here that there's no subscription. There's nothing forced. It's completely different. In verse 3, David says of his Lord, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Messiah's people, those who trust and follow him, are transformed so that they willingly serve their king. That phrase, offer freely, is the same one used to describe the free will offerings at the temple. Those are the sacrifices of the offerings that were not mandated by the law, but they were allowable for the law, for those that, that experienced God's mercy and wanted to show an extra measure of thankfulness and gratitude. Is it surprising then that Paul in Romans 12 calls all Christians to be living sacrifices, to literally offer up their lives freely to God because of his great mercy towards us? Maybe he has this psalm in mind. That's certainly what's envisioned here. The Messiah goes to make war on his enemies, to defeat sin and death and hell. And what happens? His people rise up joyfully. They don't say, I don't want any part of that. They're like, look, there's our king. He's going into battle. Let's go with him. Now, commentators are split on whether or not the Lord is clothed in his holiness or his people are clothed in his holiness. The ESV tends to shift towards the Lord exegetically, I'm not sure what the answer is, but theologically, I know what the answer is. I don't know if David had this in mind, but we know that the Lord is holy. The Lord is holy in all things, and more than that, when we trust him, he gives us his holiness to wear before God that we might be declared righteous and justified. More than that, when we behold his glory, we are changed into holy people. Transformation takes place so that our righteousness is not just in Christ, a legal thing, but he is slowly sanctifying us so that we are holy after the pattern of Christ. The last part of verse 3 is more clear. It's some mixed metaphors about a woman's, uh, a mother's womb and about morning dew. Both involve the idea of newness of life and the consistency of youthful energy. And so what David is envisioning is the Lord never having to take a break. He's never leaning against his sword, catching his breath. No, he is continually refreshed as he goes about defeating his enemies, always taking the lead in battle as his people joyfully follow on. We see it again later in verse 7 where it says that he always is able to lift his head. The Messiah never tires or fails. And that refreshment runs off to his people as well, bringing enthusiasm for their own worship and service to their Finally, finally, we see that at the end of it all, the Messiah secures a global victory. Messiah secures a global victory. 
Earlier in verse 1, we saw the imagery of enemies being made a footstool. We said it was a reminder of Psalm 2, but it also reverberates with other passages like Psalm 108 where God is said to trample his enemies. And ultimately all the way back to Genesis 3.15. There God promised a son who would end the spiritual conflict between the godly descendants of the woman and the wicked descendants of the serpent. The one who deceived Adam and Eve and therefore brought sin and death and corruption into the world. This son will reverse that. It's the reason why Joy to the World is one of my favorite hymns. That the son comes. This king is coming and he will make his blessings know far as the curse is found. In other words, it's done away with. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. I believe David has that in mind here as well. This is where verse 5 takes us. It takes us all the way to the last day where Messiah brings everything to an end. David says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among all the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Jesus' exaltation in verse 1 is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. It's the prelude to world domination. Not, 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 not physically, not through politics, but spiritually. Ending. All sin and rebellion one day. Thus, this rule is not just from heaven. It's not some spiritual pie-in-the-sky reality. It has earthly consequences. Because Messiah's enemies are earthly people. It points us forward to what we see in Revelation 19, this sobering picture of the end. When John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Many people claim to be fans of Jesus, but it's a Jesus, once again, of their own making. Making. Over the years, we've seen people in Hollywood make popular Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. We've seen in movies and and sold in stores buddy Jesus statues giving us the double thumbs up. We've even had race car drivers praying to baby Jesus because that's the one he likes the best. But none of those portrayals are real. Those do not represent the authentic Jesus who is pictured here as the divine warrior coming to wreck shop against God's enemies in a very, very real way. Ever since his coming into this world and his ascension to his Father, he has been expanding his kingdom in this world through the message of the gospel, reconciliation with God through his death and resurrection. But on the last day, it will be done. It will all end with one fell swoop. And all of his enemies, all those who have persisted in their rebellion and in their sin and rejecting his ways, they will face his wrath. It will be a sobering day. It is not one that as God's people we should ever joke about or laugh about or speak about with a smirk on our face, but with tears in our eyes. 
that's for his enemies, but for his people, for Messiah's holy army. Those who trust him to be their savior, they can take comfort both now and on that day because of his priesthood. This is our final response to Psalm 110 this morning. We should take comfort in the Messiah's priesthood. Take comfort in the Messiah's priesthood. Now, if you're keeping track of the time and you're wondering, boy, this is coming to, we're about halfway done. This is, this last section is uh, going to be a sprint to the end because we are here needing to really take a deep dive into the glories of Scripture and God's providence and history. And so if I've put you to sleep at this point uh, or your neighbor to sleep, give them a little elbow, rouse them because you need to buckle up and here we go. Verse 4, and, and to be honest, I, I well, never mind, let's just, let's just go. Verse 4. This gives us the second oracle of the psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this comes right in the description of Messiah as king. And if you know your Old Testament, it should seem really, really out of place. Why? Because according to the law, kings can't be priests and priests can't be kings. In fact, when you read Samuel and Kings, the books, you see some people getting in mad trouble when they try those shenanigans. We're talking death in the ending of their reigns. Yet here is David looking forward in time, telling of the Messiah who is to come, who will do this very thing. He will be both priest and king. So where does this come from? Aren't priests from the tribe of Levi? Aren't, aren't, the, aren't the, the kings coming from, from David's line, which is not part of Levi? And who in the world is Melchizedek? Why does he have this order of priesthood that David seems so happy about? Well, Melchizedek only shows up in one place in the Bible before this, Genesis chapter 14. In that chapter, we read about four kings in the area of, of, of a certain area of the ancient Near East that form into a large raiding party, and they go attacking city after city after city, grabbing wealth and people as they go. One of the families that was taken was Lot's family. If you remember, Lot was the cousin of, or excuse me, the, na- the nephew of Abraham, Abraham was the man at that point in redemptive history that God had chosen in, to enter into a special covenant with through whom he would bless all nations. And so Abraham hears about his nephew and his family who have been taken captive. He joins up with his own group of kings and they seek to go and raid these other bad kings to both recover the wealth and give it back to the people and for Abraham to save his nephew from slavery. God is with his servant Abraham and his friends, and they are victorious. As a result, the king of Sodom offers Abraham his rightful reward for this battle, the, the, the spoils of war, so, so to speak. And Abraham refuses. He says, no, thank you. And he's like, what are you talking about? This is yours. He goes, no, 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 no. Listen, if you give that to me, that will in some way make me greater than I am. And God has promised to make me great. I don't want anyone to look and say, oh, the king of Sodom, he's the one who made Abraham great. Abraham says, no, God alone gets the glory for my greatness. Keep your money. But right in the middle of the story, I mean, literally, it's an interruption when you're reading it. It's like you're talking about Abraham, the king of Sodom, boom, pause, and then boom, we pick it up back up. Right in the middle of this interruption is this man, Melchizedek. What is he doing there? Who is he? What's going on? Well, first of all, if you've read through Genesis you'll know that every important person is introduced with what? A genealogy. Here was his dad, who's his dad, whose dad, his dad, his dad, his dad, his dad, his dad, boom, person, right? 
We, we, see that for, we see that for Noah. We see that for Abraham. Everybody important is introduced to the genealogy. Not Melchizedek. He's just there. He's just there in the text. He has none. We are told he is the king of Salem. Yet, as he walks into the story and he greets Abraham and he gives refreshment to him and his men, then he does a priestly act. He blesses Abraham. And how does he bless him? By the God Most High. Who is that? It's Yahweh the Lord. It's the one true and living God. Why? Because we're told then, he's not just king of Salem, he's also priest of the Most High God. This means Melchizedek serves the same God as Abraham. And at this point in the narrative, it's like we don't know of anybody else that knows the Lord. We don't know anybody else serving him. And suddenly here is this man, Melchizedek, who was both king and priest serving the one true and living God in the city of Salem, which would ultimately become, you can hear it, Jerusalem many years from now. At this point in the biblical story, we may be like, wow, man, that's a coincidence. That's, that's interesting. But then we get a surprising turn, maybe even more surprising, more shocking than verse 1 about David's greater son. When you read that while Abraham refuses to take his reward, when he meets the king of Salem, the high priest Melchizedek, he pays him a tribute. He gives him a tithe of all that he has. Now, remember what we said earlier about cultural greatness. At this point in the narrative of Genesis, Abraham is the greatest person we know. He, he has a covenant with the living God. It is through him that all the world will be blessed. Anyone who trashes Abraham, God's going to trash. But anyone who blesses Abraham, God's going to bless. So, but, but Abraham is paying tribute to, he is showing the greatness, the superiority of Melchizedek with this gift. What is going on? Melchizedek is somehow greater even than Abraham. So what about Psalm 110? What is happening here? How is he being pulled into this text? Well, I think D.A. Carson has a pretty plausible explanation, and I want to share and expand on that with you right now. Remember, stay with me now, remember that according to the law, the first thing a king was supposed to do was to get the scrolls of the Pentateuch and handwrite his own copy of the first five books of the Old Testament. The law of God. Why? That he might know them, that not just passively hear them, but they might pass through his mind and into, into his heart as he writes them down. And then this is his personal reference copy. Remember, people don't have study Bibles. They don't have the ESV brick that they just pull off with that nice orange and white cover. And No, they don't have anything like that, right? Most people can't even read. So the, the most important task of the king is to trust God, to follow his ways, and to lead the kingdom to do the same. So he needs a copy of the law. So he handwrites this. We see in the book of 2 Samuel how David began his reign over only two tribes in, in, in the city of Hebron. Seven years later then, he moved to Jerusalem and he took control of all 12 tribes. He is the, he is the full king over all of Israel. Not long after that, what happens? The tabernacle is now moved to Jerusalem. And in the next chapter, the Lord comes to David and he establishes his covenant now with David. This is the covenant about the promised Messiah who says, listen, I'm not going to do what I did to Saul and rip the kingdom from him and from his line. No, you wanted to build a nice house for me, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build a dynasty for you. 
I'm going to enter into covenant with you so that your sons will always be on the throne in Israel. If there is a throne, it'll be a son of David who sits on there. Moreover, uh, there's going to be a special king that comes from him. He will be, I will be to him as a father. He will be to me a son. And through him, his kingdom will not end. Sound familiar? It's the Messiah that's being promised there. And so for the first time, for the first time, we have both kings and priests in the same city in Israel. And as David is copying down his version of the law, what has he been reading? What is the first book? Genesis. And he hits what we call chapter 14. And he realizes this is the only other place this has happened in history. King and priest in Jerusalem at the same time. David has physically come from the line of Abraham. All Jews have. Because Abraham is David's father. That means Abraham is superior to David. But Abraham has shown the superiority of Melchizedek by paying him the tithe. That means Melchizedek is greater than David. And so I think the Spirit brings these things together in David's mind and he says to himself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All those promises that God has made to deal with sin through a son, Genesis 3, to bless the nations through Father Abraham, Genesis 12, to have his anointed come through my line, personal covenant. And yet that means that anointed is going to far surpass me because his reign's not going to end. He will look much more like this man of the past, Melchizedek. Here is a picture of what God is going to do with the Messiah. He's not going to be like a priest from Levi. He's not just going to be a king from David. He's going to be like this guy. This unique thing that God was doing in the past through Melchizedek. And with astonishment and joy, he begins to write Psalm 110. Even more, the New Testament writers grab onto this and they see the same insight that David had. And they say, oh yes, of course, now that Jesus has come, now that we understand the fullness of his ministry as the Messiah, how could we not have seen it before? It's perfectly described here in Psalm 110, and so they cannot get away from it. They use it in their preaching, they use it in their writings. As the Messiah, Christ is the conquering king. But as a merciful high priest, he is one in whom his people can take comfort. They can take comfort in his priesthood for two reasons. First of all, because he serves in a better ministry. He serves in a better ministry. The priesthood given to Israel by God was a gracious gift for them. Listen, as we're going through Leviticus and Pastor Greg's sermons, please don't roll your eyes, either physically or mentally, at the procedures, at the offerings, at the prayers delivered on behalf of God's people by those Levitical priests. Listen, for all of the cultural distance, for all of its unnecessity for us now that Jesus has come, that was a gracious gift from God. It was how he, a holy God, could dwell in the midst of them, a sinful people. Apart from that ministry, Israel was stuck in their sins without fellowship from God and no hope for the future. The problem was that those sacrifices were incapable of doing what only Jesus could do. Hebrews 7 explains that this new priesthood that emerges with Jesus that David has envisioned was needed because the old priesthood with Levi couldn't bring about perfection. Why? Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to completely take away sin. To take away sin. 
Atonement in the Old Covenant was only temporary. And so we have all these sacrifices over and over and over. The page of Leviticus drips with blood showing you how persistent sin is in our lives and how serious God takes it. And no animal could ever sufficiently deal with it. But now here comes Jesus. Here comes the promised Messiah, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what does Hebrews 10 make clear? Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus had a better ministry because he was a better priest who offered a better sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of his own life for sinners. It was through the offering of Christ's own life that full and final atonement for sins was made. He was, as John observed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And having completed that task, he was raised back to life so that through the power of his resurrection, he has opened for all his people now the path of power for sinners to be made right with a holy God and experience their own new life in this life and in a life to come through resurrection. All that's required is not working, not earning, not doing something for God's favor, but just trusting Christ, trusting Jesus to be the Christ, the promised Messiah. But how will we live the way that Jesus' people are supposed to live? We saw earlier that they are this holy army that joyfully follows their king. Maybe it's just confession time for me, but I don't always joyfully follow my king. I don't always follow my king. How how, how can we have confidence that we will make it to the end? That on the last day that we will not be among those judged and condemned by Christ the king? Well, We can take comfort in Jesus' priesthood because it never stops. Unlike anyone else, Jesus provides eternal assurance. Jesus provides eternal assurance. Think about the oath that God swore to his anointed. David says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean for us? It means that Jesus' priestly ministry never comes to an end. Unlike the Mosaic law and his Levitical priesthood, which did come to an end, which came to fulfillment in Jesus, he remains. He never tires out. He never wears out. He never dies. God has sworn an oath. And God's not going to break his oath. Nor is he powerless to keep it. As a priest forever, that means that Jesus will always take up his priestly duties and intercede for his people. Listen to Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Yeah, death, tried that, didn't work. I'm alive forevermore, Jesus says. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're a parent and you're teaching your kids to ride a bike, They usually don't get it the first time. They're usually wobbly. They're prone to tumble over. So what do you do? Well, most parents don't just say, suck it up, buttercup, try again, try again, try again. No, you run with them, right? 
Yes, you're panting and you're sweating and you're tired at the end, but you're running alongside them as they're rocking back and forth and, and, and trying to steer, either holding onto the seat or you're holding onto the handlebars, uh, guiding them on, pr- encouraging them, keep pedaling, keep pedaling, keep pedaling. And Jesus does the same for his people. As our eternal priest king, he is interceding for us. He is praying for us. He is constantly pouring out and applying to us all the benefits of our salvation in him. So as we're inclined to trip and to stumble in this world, he's saying to our father, let's help them. Let's sustain them. Let's encourage them. And sometimes we lose sight of the Savior and we face plant hard into the muck of sin. And Jesus comes to us and he assures us by his spirit and his word, you can get up and you can get moving again. You haven't ruined anything. I've atoned for that sin too. Keep moving. Get up. Keep trusting because I've got you to the end. This is the power of Jesus' eternal priesthood. His intercession preserves his people to the last day. In the coming weeks, you will have ample time to think about baby Jesus lying in a manger. And it's a glorious thought. When he's presented to Simeon, who was told he would see the Savior. You can imagine him just taking him in his arms and weeping and crying. Why? Because he probably thought, I'm going to see a conquering king one day. And instead, what was he given? A weak old baby to hold and to cherish. And, and, and God said to him by the Spirit, that's the Messiah. But just remember who that baby was born to be. He's no mere teacher or philosopher. He was no misunderstood prophet. He was, he is, and he will forever be the promised Messiah, the anointed son of David, the Christ. And here there can be no hedging our bets, no wavering. Either we reject him and we walk away from everything that is Jesus. You you, you can't take part of him with you. Or we believe him. And we live as if he is the most important person who has ever lived, the person who changes everything. Sent by God as the promised Messiah, Jesus is not just the king who destroys sin, but he is the priest who saves sinners. In him we see one who is glorious in beauty and holiness, ever living, ever serving for our eternal good. In Jesus, we have one before whom we can joyfully bow and serve. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to fathom this morning the great blessing that is Jesus to our lives. Even as I have sought to do justice to your word through this psalm, there is more, so much more that we could have said, that we could have understood, that we could have applied to our lives. But I pray, Father, that what was here was faithful to you and to your message and to your Son, who we love and we trust. I pray, God, if there is anyone here who whether young or old, has uh, even claimed that perhaps to be a Christian, but they have never truly understood who Jesus is as both priest and king. They have not seen that it is not by their righteous deeds, but by His righteous deeds alone that they will be saved. Father, I pray, I pray that you will call them to yourself today. If there is someone here who is, who is limping between a decision, they, they like some things in Jesus, they, they don't like some other things, I pray, Father, that you would help crystallize and clarify 
the great grace that you offer through him and that you will call them to yourself. For, for those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time now, I pray, Father, that this psalm would reinvigorate our own faith, our own affection, our own desire to serve well our King in all things. I pray, Father, that more than just with the words of our lips, but with the fruit of our lives, we will honor Christ at Christmas. And not just at Christmas, but until you call us home. We ask all these things in his glorious and precious name. And now we continue silently in prayer, asking the Lord to show us how specifically to apply these things to our lives.